What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Carolina Next Day Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Palat. This week's special guest is a friend, a mentor, someone I look up to, Darnell Moore. He's currently the editor-at-large at Cassius, but he's an author, activist, overall creative mind, and we have a wide-ranging conversation. We discuss the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement. We discuss masculinity in America, race in America. Talk a little bit about Dr. Cornell West, a little about Tenahasi Coates, a little about neoliberalism. We talk about his book coming out in May, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. It's a lengthy conversation, but a good one, and one I think you all enjoy. I have a special guest with me, a friend, um, a friend of a friend, so therefore he is my friend, Darnell Moore. How are you, Darnell? I'm good. It's Friday. It is Friday. You know, we're recording this on a Friday. You know, it's muggy out. It's been uh, it's been really cold, but it's about 60 degrees right now. And I'm excited. I'm excited to have a, you know, a good conversation with you about a bunch of things across the board, whether Absolutely. it be your book, uh, culture, masculinity, all these different things. So uh, before before we dive into those, uh, you know, we we alluded to the fact I met you through Fred. Yes. Fred, uh, you know, who shout was, out to Frederick Williams. Yes. Fred, who is like a big brother brother to me um you know I, when fred first told me about you first thing i said was who is this dude stealing my best friend because <laughs> because i had heard of i had heard of you before you know you were working at a previous media company at the time um and i started reading more of your work and i was like i gotta i gotta connect with this guy but give a little bit of your background uh for people who may not be familiar with you yes so i am first thank you for having me on uh it's a it's a blessing um, so I come to media through a bunch of other things I've done. This is probably like uh, my third life. I'm old. Um, so media is is a more recent um, part of my career path. And right now I am the editor at large at Cassius, which is a digital platform that is uh, under the auspices of I1 Digital. So I1 Digital is part of one of the largest black media companies in the country, maybe the world. So we are th of the family of Radio One, um, which is about 53 radio stations across the country, okay. TV One, which is our cable station, and then I1 Digital, which is all of our digital platforms, like Hello Beautiful, Boss Up, um, Madame Noir, Black Planet was founded here. Yeah. Um, Hip Hop Wire, dot, dot, dot. Anyway, so now I work in media. This is what I do. And... Um, but but I've done a lot of things before I did, before I got here before I got to media. I mean, you you are one of the sort of leading voice voices in the uh, activist community. You stand for not just the black community, the LGBT community. I think you just you know I think it's really unfair when people are put in those category <laughs> categories because I think activism is just really standing up for the people Absolutely. in general. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in 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 the cases that we speak about, uh, you know, in the conversations we've had for marginalized communities. Um, so, you know, I want to I want to talk about some marginalized communities before we, uh, you know, dive into some other topics of race, all that sort of thing. Uh, I want to talk the Me Too movement. And I also want to talk the Time's Up movement, sure. because uh, sexual harassment made a real, real, real big noise in 2017, far overdue. Um, what we saw at the Golden Globes, we saw everybody with the Time's Up pins. We saw them, you know, really connecting this to the Me Too movement, which we know is over a decade old at this point. Uh, but I had a conversation with my podcast partner Monday about this. Um, I am a little skeptical of the Time's Up movement. Uh, I agree with it in all its principle, but is there room for error when we have seen, especially in Hollywood, that there are people in this movement that tend to be forgotten, whether it is black women who have been 
historically at the bottom of the social totem pole uh, and those in the LGBTQ communities, because that is something that we don't hear about a lot. It seems like when we hear about Time's Up, uh, we hear mostly about white women, which is fine. But where are our people as well? Yeah. So what was really dope about the Time's Up movement activation that happened at the Golden Globes was that these white women who utilize their access to to the Hollywood audience brought women of color alongside of them. And um, that was very strategic. It was work that had been going on over several months. And I only know this because we actually just interviewed Rosa Clemente, who is a Afro-Puerto Rican activist, organizer, scholar who told us as much. Um, what was what was dope is that there were a lot of, of women of color, black women behind the scenes like Tracy Ellis Ross um, and so many others who had actually been the the real force behind a lot of this work i i don't know if it's a farce I, I think what we know is this that whether you're black or white if you're a woman you're likely going to be um harassed or sexually assaulted by someone who is in your orbit um so in many ways sexism misogyny and rape doesn't have a color line right we also know though that women of color are most likely to be um, sexually assaulted or experience forms of sexual violence in ways that are disproportionate to their white counterparts yes there are silences right we we in america i think in, in the u.s we tend to love perfect victims and in our minds those victims who we tend to feel most connected to tend to be white folk particularly white women um but Time's Up movement moment, if it did nothing else, it was an opportunity for us to sort of nuance that. Um, and the presence of those black and brown women, um, Asian women, women who identify as queer, um, and black women on a carpet, carpet, I think, signified to Hollywood that the face of the movement has to be much more diverse than what they have had it to be so far. You, you bring up some interesting points, especially about the sort of perfect victims, uh, you know, what they have traditionally been in this country. Uh, but, but what about those who are especially not seen? Mm. Um, you know, because, I, again, I don't I don't want to make it I don't want to make it seem like I'm being color, or that I'm coloring myself as a, as a skeptic. Um, but what about those in the LGBT community? Because that, that is something that isn't spoken about enough um you know you you wrote a piece a few weeks ago the, the bodies of others are not mine uh which raised its own sort of uh conversation in itself that's a really polite way to put it <laughs> yeah and and you know i, I don't want to go into that you know i don't I'm, I'm not here to make this podcast you know uh, a pseudo gossip column but it raised important conversation yep. uh the rebuttal after it raised important conversation uh but where should we be uh, thinking about this when it comes to the LGBT, LGBTQ community. And, and I, I speak that as, as a heterosexual male who had, has not thought about this enough. Sure. I, I think um, sexual assault, sexual harassment, harm of any type that endangers our bodies and our, psychic, our psyches can happen to anyone. Uh, what, I, what I will say is that men, however we identify, um, in terms of our sexual identities, our gender, we all have a stake in this conversation. So whether the targets of, and, and let me be clear, the we don't have a monolithic perpetrator and a monolithic victim of sexual harm. Any of us who are human beings can, can do harm. Absolutely. That is to say that there are young boys, girls, folk who don't even identify using those genders who are harmed. 
and perpetrators who fit a gambit of descriptions. What I think you're asking us is the need to nuance the conversation a bit more, and that is to say it is not all um, straight, to use that colloquial, um, that LGBT folk also suffer um, sexual assault and violence, that um, men who, not just straight men, need to be held accountable are asked to sort of think about their position um, in connection to sexism and misogyny, that queer men can be misogynist, that gay men or bisexual men can actually be sexist, um, that any of the above, whether you're straight, whether you're queer, can, whether you're gender nonconforming, can absolutely harm someone. Um, and, and we need to just be honest about that and have more nuanced conversations. Why do you think we, we haven't been having open conversations? Because that's really sort of where I'm getting at here. Well, we and, don't and have open conversations for a couple of reasons. One, I don't we we have yet in this country to to really sit with and be comfortable with conversations around sex, period. <laughs> yeah. All right. So like here to talk about like sex ed um, is really about prevention and really teaching us about preventionary measures as it relates to how to protect ourselves from either pregnancy or getting someone pregnant or engaging someone such that we end up getting an STI, a sexually transmitted infection. It was never, we're never taught to love our bodies, to value our sensuality, to value who we are as sexual, spiritual beings, as cognitive beings. We don't have those conversations. We barely can look at ourselves in the mirror um, because of the ways that we're shaped by society in terms of body image with and, and look at something in a mirror that we actually love, right? So if we are a country, like as a country, as a society, um, that we are not even really comfortable with talking about sex, sexuality, sensuality in that way, it damn sure means that we're not going to be comfortable talking about um, the borders of those things, which is consent. Well, not even borders, what's central to those things. Like the consent, what what... I mean, who's having that conversation? Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't remember. Do you remember? Like, do you remember? I because I don't. I don't yeah. remember someone sitting me down and saying, "You know, when you are." First of all, I don't remember anyone sitting me down talking about sex. Period. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, I don't remember anyone saying if you are going to engage someone, you know, they have to give you permission. And and even beyond that, before that conversation, I don't think I've ever had someone to say something to me like, "Love your body." Like, do you see your body? Do you know those arms are yours? You know those lips are yours? Like, do you know whether your arms are, are are skinny or whether they're fat or whatever? Like, that body is yours and it's meant to be loved. I don't remember shit. Nobody ever told me anything like that. Yeah, you know, th those conversations didn't happen a lot. It was, it was a bit different for me because I grew up in the South. So the lines or the conversations of consent were really paralleled with the, with 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 race because I was a young black man in the South, young black boy so in the South. So you pretty much were told to stay. Nobody's talking to like yeah, white girls. Do not do you do not sleep with white women, and if you do bring a white woman home, uh, you better have every permission in the world to hold her hand. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the the conversations around consent for me were more along the lines of race because it was a different lifestyle down there. But but but. It's funny that you bring up consent. I think it's important that you bring up consent because even conversations now that I have with friends of mine, male and female, um, those those lines are still blurred. Well, you when you your example of consent is perfect because what that conversation was really about was about protection of you. Yes, protection of my body. Right, and it's never really about how someone else. It's not about the other person's comfort. 
it's not about their ability to say yes or no, like their willingness to engage with us, their desire to like, though, that's not really about the other person. Like, and those are a different set of conversations, right? Like, and I'm imagining what this moment is asking of us to consider is what what those conversations can be like moving forward, right? You, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, just ma- imagine, like, do you ever say something like, damn, like, you, even with our, the people that we're intimate with, yeah, you just roll up on them and hug them. Like, do yeah. you ever stop and say, can I hug you? Yeah, those those are things that, are, honestly, and I'm not saying this because it feels <laughs> like the, the moment, those are things I think about every time Every time I happen to take a picture with someone, yeah. male or male or female mm-hmm. or, or trans, uh, you know, it's so easy when you stand next to someone in a picture to instantly wrap your hand around them. Sure. To wrap your hand around their waist, to wrap your hand around their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I come from a family that, uh, you know, half of my family is Latino and Puerto Rican. So all they do is kiss, hug, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So from a family standpoint, that's what I was grow up used to. That's what I was I grew up used to. Uh, but you're right. It's interesting that we don't think about consent even on a uh, on a touching basis mm-hmm. because that's just not how we have been taught it, it, I would say in society, but especially as men. And, sure. and you bring up an interesting point um, because again, going back to your piece, uh, you, you wrote in your piece uh, or you alluded to the fact this is, this starts with thought, you know, the whole concept of someone else's body is not my own. The way that you look at someone, the way that uh, you may instantly devour them in your mind. Um, you brought up a few good points. You said, quote, they in my imagination are things, objects, targets to be hit. I do not take in line to, rela- to relate the fact that I've stripped them of their humanness and place them in your fascination. Uh, d- is this something that starts with a mentality or well, is it simple conversation? I think the, the more precise term, and I, may, I could have been clearer with this, isn't not nece- it isn't only necessarily our thought. It's... Um, the cultures in which we are socialized. Okay. That's more precise. In other words, we come to think what we do because someone had to tell us. We were socialized. Yeah. And, and you know, so what is, and that sounds too fancy to me, right? In other words, someone, some institutions, some things within our home or within our schools or within our church or what we watch on television tells us as um, people who identify as men and boys that, there are certain ways we are to move in, in the world. You know, let's basic shit is like be strong, um, take leadership of the home, which is also to say take leadership of the bodies in your home, be the head of your home. Um, you know, that to be weak um, is to somehow be femme, which is also to just be not a real man, which is to be bad. All of these ideas and these we're, we're taught to behave and well to think in these ways and those thoughts shape our behaviors um and that's what i'm trying to get at right like it is not to say that lust or sexual attraction and being able to gaze upon somebody and see someone beautiful is a bad thing now notice what i said there to see Mm -hmm. someone beautiful that's different than looking at and and you can even all right let's just even keep it real like you look at somebody you see a body parts first you know they may have something that's accentuated that you <laughs> that you anim- that makes you feel type of way yeah um if in that process i forget or lose lose track of the fact that that person is a human being who's who has the right really um to allow my gaze to allow my look or to allow um, me to sort of like 
pretty much, you know, eat them up in my mind and my desires is, you know, if I don't think about that, I make them something other than a human being. I make them like a target. What I'm saying is when you all these dudes that I've been up on the news and who have have these allegations pointed at them, who people are saying harm them, had to think some harmful shit before they did it. Like the lust and let, that's a perfect word to use can really drive your actions. If somebody walked by you every day and you're like, damn, she look good. Damn, her body banging. I'm good. I'm going to hit that. I want that. Listen to the words, right? This is what we think sometimes yeah. in our mind. And some people don't have the sort of social, that whatever that line is, that line that, that sort of often becomes a sort of differentiating point between like an act and a thought. Some folk will damn sure do whatever they can to erase that line to precisely go and get the thing that they have desired and saturated, like, and, and eaten up in their mind. Absolutely. Now, even if I don't, even if I'm not the person that, that sexually assaulted somebody or didn't do the rape or didn't do some fuck shit, like, I don't know, sexually harass someone, that makes me no better. It makes me no better. And that's what I think we need to reckon with, like, how we hold up all this harmful shit um, and, and make everybody else the monsters who do the sort of outright stuff you get caught for, but see ourselves as being like angels. Because I just happen not to be caught, or because I happen not to do the you know the actual physical act, um, even if in my mind I might have dehumanized somebody. You uh you brought up you brought up the idea of socialization, our thoughts, uh, really the formulization of, you know you you really you you segue to the next my next question on this idea of masculinity because uh you know in in, in as a young man growing up you are taught. Uh, you go and get what you want. You were taught this hunter-gatherer mentality. Uh, you know, I know, I know Cassius just did, just did a piece on the conversation of masculinity, what it means. Uh, I know you guys, I know you all had uh, four different people that you were speaking with uh, on just sort of their different sort of upbringings in what masculinity is. Uh, and again, maybe, maybe, this is, maybe this is a repetitive question, um, but how has the formulization or our formulization in masculinity, especially as young black men in America, uh, how is this added to the danger uh, or the scope of danger when it comes to sexual harassment and sexual assault? Because again, you bring up, I mean, I don't know how many conversations I had in college, like, damn, I'm going to hit that and I'm going to do whatever it takes. Mm. Um, and you don't even think, you don't even think in the sense of in that moment, what that's, what that statement really means. Because again, you know, I've grown up understanding, well, you don't sleep with a woman if they've had alcohol in their system um, to the point it still scares me today. Uh, but those things that we those conversations that we have, even as men with each other, uh, it's been easy to forget at times that those those thoughts uh, are dangerous, not only for myself, but in what they mean for the men who are around me. Yeah. And I want to be clear, too. I don't I so I don't think that black men have a higher share of the types of um or that we have a higher stake or a bigger stake in the game that's called ma patriarchy sexism and mask you know absolutely not I, I will say that here in in this country in the united states um you know it's a country that's founded in, in principles of patriarchy and principle. And, you know, sometimes using this language, it can get really tricky, right? Because I, I think we, it lacks precision, but everything about this country rides on, um, these, the, the ideas of a masculinity and manhood. In, in other words, like 
just from the way we engage as a political a, a, a political nation like the way we go to war think about like <laughs> the way we go to, it's it's so it's it's so not even strange to me that like our responses as a democracy is one that is so deeply like the type of messages I heard growing up in the hood, right? Like someone come up in your face, you punch them the fuck back. Yeah. Right. Like, because that's what men do. Men don't back down. Men fight. And everything from the rhetoric of our political, our, our state. And I'm not, and whether that's woman or man who's at the helm, but mm-hmm. the rhetoric of the state and its actions are so connected to the very rhetoric and that ideology that I heard as a young boy growing up in the streets, it's the same shit. That's what sort of patriarchy and a sort of love for maldominance does. That means it's practice, whether in our politics as a nation and in our everyday politics and in our relationships to one another. That being said, that says to me that it is not just about sort of black manhood and masculinity that is that needs to be into question, like like that we need to think about and interrogate because that's the fuck shit. Like black manhood is weird. No, no, no. Yeah. No, I'm saying like we are in a country that reproduces through its actions, through its policies, through its laws. I mean, damn, we still get mad. We still have marriages in our country where, when women lose, lose their last names. So, I mean, like just think about all this stuff. Like, so when we say patriarchy, like this is what we talk about. Like this is the, the everyday daily um, types of, um, effects that something like maldominance and sort of like this hierarchy of malness where men are at the top and women are like somewhere below come into play. That being said, like, I, you know, the second thing I'll say is, you know, if there is this black masculinity and, and who we understand ourselves to be as black men is deeply, deeply shaped by white supremacy. And that's what I was going to ask. Because, you know, so that's, I mean, I, that's the part I want, I think you're, you're asking me to, and that's, that's where I think we need to, like the yeah, conversation needs to go. And, 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 I, and I don't mean to cut you off because I, you know, the reason why I bring up black masculinity is because, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that black men are more susceptible to yeah. sexual assault. Um, those are coherently racist ideas, but I do think that black masculinity Especially, you know, my father grew up, uh, you know, Mitchell Projects, 138th Alexander in Southside Bronx. Um, he was generational poverty. Um, and I think that black masculinity, especially what we see now, even with black men who aren't in the, uh, you know, on the lower socioeconomic side of society, but even in our culture, um, I think is shaped by the fact that we have been at the lower side of the social totem pole and social economic status. But if you're looking at the projects, I think you have to look at how we got there as a people, mm-hmm. how we were put there as a people, mm-hmm. why we in some cases are stuck there as a people, yeah. which is not our own fault. Um, I'm definitely not one of the sort of, of the neoliberal mind. You can just tie your bootstraps and pick your pants up. But I do think it is coherently different. Because even the lessons I learned from my father and the lessons he learned from his father, I guarantee are different than, again, no disrespect, Timmy living in the suburbs somewhere. So not that I think that black men are coherently more susceptible to these things, but how we have spoken about these things growing up have been different. I mean, I, I think there's it's something to be, and it's, it, it requires nuance. I, I, yes, you know, we we are shaped by a lot of different things and certainly and you know 
even saying white supremacy sounds like sometimes over over said but what i mean by that is not just the ways we are shaped different in our communities and, and the lessons we have but i mean a history of what it means to be black human people in this country um means that we were first um not even thought to be humans in the first place but objects objects that were owned um, objects that anything could happen to and that includes sexual assault so like we want to talk about me too movement and the fact of the reality of what um, mass scale sexual assault and violence looks like that certainly just doesn't begin now i mean i think about our ancestors um you know the foremothers and forefathers who suffered um violent sexual attacks at the hands of white racist masters that being said, like, you know, there are scholars who talk a lot about this, like Horton Spillers, for example, a black feminist woman um, scholar who says really that black folk under the conditions of slavery were not gendered. And like as things, you don't even have a gender. Yeah. Yeah. You're a pro your property. You, you know, you're a three fifths of a human being. You are an object to be sold, um, an object to be. Um, to be beat upon, spat upon, sexually abused and used when you want it to be. So think about that. If one's beginnings in this country is such that they come as genderless objects. And I, by gender, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter the body you're in, you know, like you're rendered as an object thing. I, our route to understanding ourselves as men and women is a very different route than some others. And it means that you're constantly probably trying to always overdefine yourself against how a mainstream society and a white racial supremacist society sees you. Um, and I think that those things are important. Now that requires long, lengthy, I think work um, and nuanced conversations on our part. Those are types of conversations that we don't tend to have. What we do though is say, you know, well, you know, listen to this hip hop music that they done created or look at, look at the cultural productions without realizing that, you know, hip-hop ain't nothing more than a reflection of what the, the society that we live in um so i don't know if i have a proper answer i will say though that um we deserve better and more sophisticated and more nuanced and more thoughtful conversations that takes into account all of the historical um underpinnings that sort of position us to talk about black manhood and masculinity as right now all the things that shape us as black men um if you define yourself as that to shape us as black women as black gender non-conforming people none of that shit can happen if we're not we can't talk about sexual assault in other words if we're not talking about racism if we're not talking about materialistic greed if we're not talking about what it means to to have come up in this age under neoliberal policies like you said and so much else we have lots to talk about we, we can't talk about that shit without talking about the prison industrial complex or for for for, for far less less um fancier words the fact that most of our people whether regardless if you're in the south or in the north or in the fucking west you're in locked up somewhere right like that we are the bodies that are that are pretty much making up a big pro pro uh, proportion of the population of the incarcerated people. We can't talk about that without talking about over-policing in our communities and, and, and you know, 
before you even over police over surveilled um we can't talk about that without having like access to livable wages and jobs and all these other things so yes we can talk about race and we can talk about black manhood but we and in relation to the me too movement and in relation to sexual assault but it cannot happen if we don't talk about all those other factors okay again perfect segue here uh in the recent weeks we have seen uh those who are considered black scholars scholars in general uh in the news uh especially dr cornell west and the <laughs> the uh, ever so popular tenahasi coates who had found a who had been who has been famous but found has found more popularity mainstream popularity in the last six months uh, for those that don't know, Dr. Cornell West wrote a piece in The Guardian criticizing Tenahasi Coates and his most recent book, We Were Eight Years in Power. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the background of it, but I know you respect Dr. Cornell West. I, 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 I saw you tweeting that. Um, I'm not going to ask you to pick a side here, but I will ask you, do you think it was fair, uh, his criticisms, Dr. Cornell West, of Coates? Because... Personally, I, I, I like Coates' work. I do. Um, Dr. Cornell West called him a clever wordsmith and said he gives white supremacy too much power. Uh, if I had any sort of criticism about Coates, uh, I would say that a lot of, some people call him a pessimist. And I think before I walked in here, before even right now, I would say my problem with Coates, if I had any, would be... Uh, he he makes the idea of being a pessimist a romantic one. Mm. Um, but then I thought to myself, I don't really think that's the case, uh, which leads to sort of a second question under my original one. Uh, is Coates a pessimist or do you feel like this new fascination America has with neoliberalism has sort of hijacked his message in sort of the things he speaks about when it comes to race and white supremacy? Okay, so I know that's a multi-layered question. <laughs> I think that, um, and you know, Kiese Lehman actually made this point very, very well. He made a distinction between West's uh, the packaging of his critique and the actual substance of his critique, um, and I think that he made some really valid points. I think that there are some, um, and and I don't know if it while they were targeted at. Coates specifically, um, I think that there are critiques that all of us who consider themselves as sort of people who are part of a larger public conversation on black lives um, should take into account. So I, I welcome the critiques. I think the way that they were packaged, not just could have, but should have been better. Maybe that was like a phone call, but I, my, I think he, he probably had wrote what he did largely because there is already a public conversation being had around Coates and his signification um, as a public intellectual. That was a very, very careful way. Not even careful. I, I just, I, part of what I, I resist is the, how easy it is to turn this into a fight against these two men. Yes. Um, which I think distracts from a larger point. Well, and, and again, sorry to interrupt, because Coates writes about this in yeah, Eight Years does. of Power when he's at Howard, yeah, yeah. how he is sort of looking sort of through uh, the history of black scholars. And he said, in, instead of finding, uh, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm not quoting here, instead of finding the fascination in sort of finding the truth, 
he found wars, wars upon wars upon wars. And here's a, and and let me be clear. I think that um, you know, wars, if that's what he calls them, are critique is is not a bad thing. I, I think that we grow and are sharpened by critique when in fact the critique aims to produce a good end. That said, um, I don't know if I'm um if this properly addresses the second question, but. I don't know. I, I, I think that, so yeah, I, I have a deep respect for West um, and I have a, a really deep appreciation for Coates. I, uh, what I will, uh, lessons I learned from that moment is how easy it is for so many of us. Um, it was a generational lesson for me. I, I find that public intellectuals, writers, particularly those for whom, whose work built the foundations, some of the foundations for any of the work we do now, it's like once the new generation sort of moves into position, it, it 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 becomes like slaughtering day for those who come before, which is not to say that our, our generations that precede us are always right because they're not. But I watch this happen with people like Bell Hooks, who I respect and love and who I also sometimes disagree with. I watch this happen with folk like Wes, who I respect and love and sometimes I disagree with. Um, and how easy it is for um, generations that come behind to as a mentor of mine Cheryl Clark said to kill the fathers and it's funny because we're going to be in that same position and as someone <laughs> it, regardless of what we say they like or not it's just going that's just how it goes yeah someday there's going to be some generation that's going to be like uh, Aaron like I don't give a shit if there's some some if if there is some grounded truth in what you have to say no like it's just a reject a full flood so there's that um, but I, what I took from that, the Rob and Kelly offered such like a, a a very passioned and like balanced response, which is to say like this is the wrong like let's not fall into the sensationalistic trap, uh you know that the, that people will turn this into be, but let's see if there's something to take away from it, and I think that the questions were were crucial like one we use words like neoliberal and we use all this stuff one do we know what we mean when we say that um in any of these that that's one thing so i'm not sure how would you define it well for me it is a it's just not an an economic posture but also a sort of it's a set of economic relations but it's also a philosophy that's grounded in um commodifying individualism commodifying sort of expertise and the I as opposed to a more robust collective understanding of economic relations that is communal. That is to say under neoliberalism, like the push towards um, a proliferation of the goods, um, of the expert laborers who can produce the goods, um, of quick globalization and the spread of globalization and maybe I'm talking a bit about neoliberal capitalism capitalism at the same time mm -hmm. um, neoliberalism is a sort of ethos it's a, a sort of grounding philosophy that comes in with you know Thatcher and Reagan right um, that is all about like a movement from the private uh, 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 elimination or closing in on the gap of the of the public sector um, and moving some of those same, the, the sort of, the works that the public sector are, are meant to perform for the good of the collective to a private sector. Um, that's a lot that I just said. 
right? Yeah, but some people, again, some some of the listeners can be a little lost there. Yeah, but it's an, but an, another way to say it, I think that gets to the the way I think about neoliberalism is not just in terms of an economic practice that says you know basic things like so who controls the water in your city where you live right like is it the municipal utilities authority that is a, a public good or is that going to be sold over to a private company um, who will take tolls for your bridges is that going to be collect will you sell the bridges like they did in Detroit to a private company mm-hmm so now if you want to go from like Detroit to Canada, a private company actually runs that bridge. Is the bridge a public good? So do we want to sort of lessen down or hamper down on what the public, the people, the state is supposed to be providing for our people? Do we turn it over to a private sector? All right. That's like economics, like, like 101 neoliberalism. But what about culturally? But then culturally, it is really about um, what I say is like a a focus away from community collectivity to individualism that is and by that i mean if the public good and if the public market and sector is is meant to provide for and to the collective is driven by the collective um private sector is often driven by a focus on expert individuals see the difference absolutely um yeah, that was a lot. But um, I think that those those things are important, like that these these types of things are important. So when Coates is talking about like Colin West, <laughs> a neoliberal, which I'm not sure is fair, because part of the question is who isn't or, or, or and, and no, I'm, what I mean by that is how um, so many of West, us. I'm sorry, West. Calling coats and yeah, and so what I mean, like all of us are shaped by neoliberalism. I mean, basic example, like now people refer to themselves as brands get the language think about this so rather than a a, a focus on you know so I, I hear this all the time like so now like folk are not talking to me about vocation they're not talking about me what i feel like i'm supposed to be doing in the world as a sense of a greater call or good or how i feel like my my gifts are in relationship to the growth of a community folks say shit to me like Ah, you need to brand yourself. What's your, what's your, this is your brand. That language is borrowed from like an economic neoliberal posture. So a brand, think about that. Like I, what I, and I, I used to always say I resist that language. Like I'm not a brand. I'm not a commodity. I'm not a product to be brought and sold. Right. Um, a product to be marketed off. Like I see my engagement in the world as a person who um, wants to go out here and yeah, be paid, but I want if I'm gonna be paid, I want to be paid for the stuff that I feel like I'm called to do. Um, that is also making an impact on the world, right? You're, you're feeding your soul and your spirit, uh, and that's I'm borrowing that from like Grace Lee Boggs, which is like a name we should know. But Grace Lee Boggs talks about like the growing of the souls, which is also something that Martin Luther King talked about. So much of what where we are in our and, and sort of as a culture, it's not about growing our souls. And and by that, I mean, yes, how does one's work relate to the growing of the soul? Like, do you get up in the morning and do the shit that you feel like that keeps you up in the middle of the night or, or wakes you up in the middle of the morning because it's not only feeding your stomach, but it's feeding the world? Like that way, like growing our souls, growing ourselves as human beings. And I'm I just got totally off from from no. West, but I do. Th- I feel like this is part of what he's getting at, right? Like, 
of our work how is that shit moving moving um shifting the structures and by structures i mean all this nastiness that we talked about up until this point such that it can change is it just placating folks so that they can read something and get off on white guilt and feel and somehow in a very strange uh, malicious sort of relationship to white guilt feel better about themselves because they they flog themselves by reading this book that makes them feel bad that don't mean shit gonna change it don't mean power's gonna shift so how do we get there and i think that's what wes is asking of us. well and and again that that is sort of where the underlining second question came from and you know, and I want to get back to neoliberalism in a second, but that's why I asked. Do you do <laughs> no you more neoliberalism? Well, well, you know, well, it 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 brings up the point that I was trying to ask, or the question I was trying to ask. In do you feel like it has hijacks Coates' message? Because personally, I don't feel like that is why Coates has written what he has written. Right. So that's why I ask, and that's why again, I know I know it could be a tiring conversation, and it can oh, be I don't an know. easy. I don't know why. I think it'd be an easy insult. But I don't. But, but yeah, but I don't know I why. Like, I feel like his message is hijacked in some sense. Well, if, or yes. his purpose. I mean, I, I, that's possible. I, I think, and I don't know this to be. It must be a burden. Um, being put in a position, and I. This is not of his own doing, I don't think, right? Like he's a writer and he wants to write um, and there is a market and um, an industry that is saw fit to capitalize off and not capitalize in such a bad way, right? Like, I mean, yeah, they're capitalized in the way that we come to understand capitalize, but saw fit to name him or anoint him as the voice. I don't know what that would feel like, and I'm not sure I would want that burden. Yeah, but it's a burden. I'm certain, um, particularly for someone who who may not have asked for it. But because one, just because one didn't necessarily ask for it, doesn't mean that you cannot, you can't, um, somehow respond in a way that pushes back against that. Um, so when you're overly represented, any of us as a particular, and for me, you know, like we, you know, I always say it's not the crabs who sort of fight, it's the barrel that sort of constricts them and forces them to claw each other. If I'm out here and, and I get overly represented as anything, as the black public, whatever, public intellectual, or as the black gay public intellectual, or the black media, it instantly, you become a stand-in for so many perspectives that it automatically means that should that be the case that I get put up in the world in that way, I should expect some claws coming to me. And that's what happened. So I'm not sure that's his fault. Um, now, maybe what Wes is asking, given that that's happened, what you going to do? Okay. No, I think that's a reasonable <laughs> question to ask. Um, and, and again, I, you know, I think that's, again, I, not that I justify. I, that's, I think that's a really suitable answer. I think that's a really suitable answer. And I think it's a really, really suitable expectation to have of Coates now who has backed away from social media all those sort of things and has and has written at times spoken at times whether it's in podcasts whatever that this is this is not what he ever thought was going to happen you know he, he wanted to be successful but he never imagined even making it this far um well you know you sound you sound skeptical i'm not skeptical Darnell. i mean like i don't think any writers or artists are not out here not thinking or imagining that they would want as wide an audience as possible to read their words. I, I, I'm not so certain I believe that. I see. Because um, ultimately that would be the goal. Now, accepting like harsh, 
and let me be clear i want to make a distinction between like heart you know critique that even in its effort to be honest or helpful and can come off harsh is different than just critique that's just packaged totally the wrong way i think that, that was packaged totally the wrong way okay okay so I, I don't think that that was fair to Coates, but I also think if Coates is really interested in being in conversation with the folk that he is writing in community with or about, then you have to hear them. You have to hear those women writers that are saying, bruh, like, I know you're learning as you go along. We all are. But in all them writings, there had to be some black women you had to read. There is, you smart, bro. You're not dumb. There is a whole genealogy of black women who have also said some of these things and that black women can appear in our works besides that of just wife or partner or mother of a child, that there is interior lives of black women that can be represented in literature, too. Yeah. So that being said, I, I mean, I wrote a book, right? Like this book will come out if I did not want um, to deal with the repercussions of the many divergent thoughts that may come in response to it that are not now let me be clear again there are thoughts that come that are that are that are intended to to help you to think differently about something to help you see a spot that you may not have seen before then there are those that are just hurtful and packaged wrong two different things mm -hmm. like i want to talk about like bullets shooting bullets in my like mugs and like offering um the type of critiques that can heal um, then why did I write a book? Why why engage in in this public work if I'm not up to to learn um, from those who might have something to offer me in the process? Are you up as as we as we speak about? Hell your book? no, I don't feel like doing. It. You know, like <laughs> I mean to be quite honest, like I, so I, this why is did what, you write the book? No, that's what I'm saying. So yes, I am. I I wrote it, and yeah. because I wrote it, I have to be ready for uh, the critiques. Does it always feel good? It does not. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, but, and I also know and I sense when critiques come to me that are loving and when there's something for me to grow. I would not be who I am if I did not open myself up to learn from those around me who have different experiences in this life as black folk than I do. I am not a black lesbian. But I damn sure learned from black lesbian feminists. That's how I came I came to understand a black politic through their work. Don't tell me that we can't turn on fucking Google or go read a book or engage a sister who's a black lesbian feminist or a black trans person to learn some shit. Right. I am not um, I don't I'm a cis gender black guy who sometimes identifies queer, who sometimes don't identify as shit. Right. Don't tell me that there is not a way that I can, and, and I'm also able-bodied, that I can't talk to disabled folk, that I can't read their works, that I can't engage their art, that I can't engage their cultural productions and learn from them. And 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 so many other people. I'm not incarcerated. I'm not undocumented. But I can be in conversation with them. So part of the task I feel like I am I have as someone who engaged in the public is to open myself up and avail myself to as many voices as possible so that the work that I produce can get closer to a type of nuanced perspective um, that might hint at and gesture at other ways of being black and dot, dot, dot in the world. To the extent that I don't do that, I, I should be open to being critiqued. 
and that's not me saying that this brother doesn't i'm just saying this in general that's what i take from it that i feel more compelled than ever um to learn and be in conversation with the very people i imagine as an audience i'm writing for now let me stop there i don't know who's everybody audience i don't know what other people's audience are yeah so i don't i wouldn't i i know in my for me in my imagined head if i have an audience who's sitting in the seats in my head they black folk and they are folk who exist on the edges of the margins. And that's who I feel like I'm in conversation with. If I can't hear them, if I can't, if should, should, should they be able to talk? If I am not open to hear, like to, to, to take in their critiques, then I need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I think that's again, reasonable. And again, it would be dangerous notion to, to, to assume who Coates is voting for. Oh, I'm not even talking about him anymore. I just mean in general. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to close the circle on that. And okay. So, so you, you brought up two points in, in that a, who you feel your audience is, um, which again, maybe you've already answered the question in, in why you wrote the book, but you and I have had this conversation before oh, where you, God. where you place your energy, all those sort of things. I'm not gonna, uh, we've had those conversations, but with this book, sure. do you think, because it is a memoir, correct? Yes. Uh, do you think uh, those who are not on the marginalized community can learn something from this? And I, that's just, that's anyone. Yeah. So the book is called No Ashes. I should plug it, right? It is Absolutely. called No plug Ashes it. in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. Um, it'll be out in May of 2018. 29th, correct? May 29th, That's my yes. mother's birthday. Oh, that's a blessing. Um, my hope is that... A, a variety of folk from a range of different backgrounds can find themselves in it. Um, it's a memoir, but it's also art. And, you know, Baraka, Amir Baraka says that art should do two things, um, re reflect beauty and reflect truth. And that's what I attempted to do. I don't know if I was successful, um, but hopefully folk from wherever they stand and are exist, sorry, in the world can find some aspect of themselves in it. You seemed very. <laughs> you seemed. You seemed like you wanted to back away from the no, initial no, no. questions I had you, uh, that I had for you. Uh, why'd you write it now? Um, why not? Did you? And, and again, like I, I've never written a book. I don't. I don't think I ever could. Um, why now? Why not earlier? Why didn't you feel a need to write it later? What inspired you to write it now? Um, I've always had a book. I, I, well, it's been it's been writing itself for several years. Um, I think I just was at a point in my life where it was just time to. My energies were committed to other things. And um, I don't know. It's like books are, they come to us as first as seeds. And, you know, there was a seed planted some time ago, um, maybe a seed that would germinate into, I think that are more than sort of one book. This is just a part of what I had imagined. Um, but it had it was a mix of timing. It was a mix of um, of chance, um, sort of meeting the right people at the right time, who could further, who could sort of come along and water the seed. Um, it was a mix of sort of just um, where I was in my life and the space I had to write. It takes time to write a book, and I was finally in a position where I could. Um, and a bit of confidence. I, I lacked it. I just was too scared to write a book, to commit myself to be, if I'm honest, to like writing a through book, you know? Yeah. It's it's a lofty idea as we tend to have, like, I'm going to write a book. And then you sit down and be like, oh, shit. 
I got to write a book. Like, how many of us in the country have thoughts to write a book? How many of us even start? How many of us finish? It's yeah. a very small number, and it's a it's a hard process. It's not easy. So um, that was it for me. And um, I, I think that it, it the universe is very providential. Um, in so many ways, the book was timely in such a way that it helped me to grow as a person. Um, I started writing this when my father passed, and I I think I feel as if I'm a different person on the other end, other side of it. Um, and I had a deeper appreciation for the humanity of my family members, um, for my city, a deeper and more nuanced understanding of like of struggle and triumph, if those things are not necessarily always mutually excuse, exclusive. Um, and I, I, I knew my voice, my writerly voice, and it, that takes time. So that's why. And, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to, to being in a world. I'm also well aware that, you know, people will love it. Some won't. And it's like my life, parts of it anyway, on paper and some of my family members' life. And that's... <laughs> Um, it brings about its own set of anxiety, but I also, you know, I rem- I had a, a, a um the publisher's lawyer who is a white woman from Texas, who had to read the book, and after she went through and did the we did our legal review, she said, I just want you to know the book is really fantastic, and I was stopped in my tracks because we were on the phone, <laughs> and I was like, what? Like in my mind, I'm thinking like she white, <laughs> and she a woman presumably possibly straight i don't know i don't know if that's true or not but like she from the south texas like what she <laughs> she she was not in the movie theater in my head when i was writing this book you know <laughs> but she saw and she said to me like people regardless of their walk of life is going to find senses of themselves in here and that just made me smile and made me fully aware of the power of art so I uh, I'm excited to get into it. Um, you know, I when I when I found out you were writing a book a while ago, Fred was telling me um, how you were writing a book. I was excited. Uh, I was excited. Doesn't it just sound so lofty? Like I'm writing a book. Like that just it's just well, it, you know, I, it sounds so audacious. It is though. Well, I think I think people misunderstand the fact that that writing is can be a tough thing for a lot of people. Can not even in the is. sense. It, well, not even in the sense of. Uh, you know, it being an art and just sort of the words coming to you. But I think you alluded to something really, really, really significant that especially when you're writing about yourself, it's a very vulnerable feeling. And it goes back to what you were speaking about even 10 minutes ago, what we were talking about 10 minutes ago in the sense of there are going to be people who read this and aren't fans. And I imagine the significance of those sort of criticisms have to be much more impactful because and and maybe I'm overshooting here in mm. the sense that all writing comes from self in some form, but this is directly from self. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's directly from self. And I am like... Are you nervous? Yeah, Excited? I'm, I'm, you know what? I have these moments where... Um, I'm a, you know, I'm a very sensitive Aquarius. I'm so sensitive about like, what I produce. <laughs> and, you know, every now and then, um, I, I shouldn't overly rely on on how other people respond to it. But, you know, you write, I'm not, I didn't, like I said, you create art because you want it to be put in the world. You want people to respond to it. So much of the the joy I get is how people are responding to it. And I've had uh, a, a brother from South Africa who read this and was like, shit, I feel like you somehow wrote about your context from the United States, but really covered my life hmm. as a South African younger brother growing up. Um, 
And another person like from Chicago, I just interviewed said the same thing. And when I hear that and both of those, well, at least one of the, I didn't imagine in my, in my movie theater, in my head, I didn't necessarily imagine a young brother from <laughs> South Africa, in my yeah. movie theater, but I did imagine Aaron from Chicago and, um, that they felt like there were seats present for them. <laughs> um, next to the white lawyer woman from Texas, it just really makes me feel pretty good. I, I was, I strive to write a memoir that isn't just narcissistic in its attempt to talk about my life, but one that um, opens up space for other characters like my city, Camden, New Jersey, my family, um, my mom and my dad, their interior lives, the people in which I engage and also the times so that it isn't just memoir as I think it's probably imagined that is like storytelling it's storytelling but it also is a bit of social history too so well Darno, I'm I'm excited to read it uh one more time uh release date and the name May 29th 2018 is no ashes in the fire coming of age black and free in America Darnell, I've enjoyed this time, man. No, I've enjoyed you. This this has been good. Like I, to- I told you, I wanted this to be like one of our sort of normal conversations. This is amazing. This is one of our normal. So people should know that we would talk like this. Yes. Like, okay. Uh, you know, so, and and you know, I, I really wanted to let you have the floor because I I do look at you as a mentor uh, in senses, and it's it's funny because you know there are always or the conversations we have had. I know that from my perspective, because I have less of it in the sense of or a less amount of experience on uh this earth that the formulations of my thoughts uh, are different so i know we've disagreed about things or i wouldn't even say disagreed about things i would we say, learn from one another yes and this is what the this is what again like what how critique should work right absolutely absolutely has and i've enjoyed i've enjoyed this time i always enjoy our conversation and uh i hope we can do this again soon of course i'm i'm look when but next time i come see you i'm i'm coming to your st- i know you're gonna be in a studio and some fancy <laughs> <laughs> i already see it coming i already see it i already see it in my vast imagination of you got it coming <laughs> i thank you so much it. i appreciate it and thank you for your time and uh for those at home thank you for listening be sure to subscribe rate share the podcast and uh I will be back next week. As always, I'm Aaron Palat, and this is the Carolina Knicks State Podcast.